Welcome, welcome. It's another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Reggie Rizzo and Marcus Paff with you on today's condensed holiday week episode. Las Vegas weddings could reach a new all-time high this New Year's Eve. We'll tell you why. And we take a look back at the year of cool stuff, the micro-naps of penguins. Plus, this week in history, we look at one of the oldest sports around. It might surprise you which one. Coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. The Associated Press reports it could be a record-setting day for weddings in Las Vegas this New Year's Eve. That's because people love a good play on numbers, and 123-123 is just that, or 12-31-23. These specialty dates almost always see a spike in activity per the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and this particular day happens to fall on a holiday already known for celebration. Melody Willis-Williams is the president of Vegas Weddings, which operates multiple venues in the city. She told the AP, quote, it's a double whammy. Anytime you get these specialty dates, you're always hugely popular, but tie that in with New Year's Eve, and it's a showstopper, end quote. The number to beat is 4,492. That was set on July 7th, 2007, or 7707. Typically, New Year's Eve in Las Vegas has drawn somewhere between 450 and 550 couples to wed since 2018. That per the Review Journal once again. But this year, they're expecting a whole lot more than that. The aforementioned Vegas Weddings is fully booked on midnight at its multiple venues, including its brown brick chapel in downtown Las Vegas with a white steeple and a red awning. Willis Williams said her company alone expects to wed more than 120 couples on New Year's Eve. Five of those will tie the knot just as the clock is counting down to midnight. Clark County Clerk Lynn Maria Goya said couples married on a specialty date in Las Vegas have described them as, quote, magic dates that are easy to remember. Quote, I think the celebration that has a group dynamic is really appealing. When everyone is in line and they're all getting married and excited about being in love, it just enhances their own experience, end quote. So, Reggie, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, because I live in Las Vegas and I, at one point in time, worked in a public relations capacity for one of the larger hotel entities out here. And I can tell you, because they operated wedding chapels at their venues, these specialty dates were huge. And I specifically remember going back to... It would have been August 8th of 2008 was a massive day for us. So I've known about this for quite some time that these dates tend to to do quite well. Add to that, I also got married in Las Vegas in 2017 at the Little Chapel of the West, although I did not pick a specialty date. I really I, I don't understand the fascination with that, but then again, maybe I just don't love love as much as some other people out there. <laughs> there is a good reason for the specialty dates. First of all, I did have to go to a wedding once on New Year's Eve, but it wasn't in Vegas. It was just a normal wedding, which I feel like takes away everyone's New Year's Eve. But the reason for the specialty date, my wife and I got married over Memorial Day weekend. Okay. Now, obviously that changes every year, but the reason for that being it's a three-day weekend. So if you do like New Year's Eve, you'll always have a three-day weekend for your anniversary. So if you want to take a trip or something, you have that extra time built in for a vacation. So okay. when I think specialty date, I think more holiday and you want to uh, you know, get that extra day in in case you want something special for your anniversary. Yeah, hey, look, I like that logic. That makes sense. But just because you get married on, say, the previous record-setting date of July 7th, 2007, 
there's nothing to suggest that's going to be a holiday. In fact, it's going to be a few days after the 4th of July, I suppose. So maybe you could always celebrate at that time, but not every specialty date comes with that built-in advantage. Yeah, I, I don't really care about the, you know, Vegas, I guess, does make sense. The 777, you know, lucky numbers. You're hitting the jackpot, sure. I guess. Still, no, no, I, I, I'm not going to pick a special day just because of the numbers align to get married. But that being said, uh, I already told my wife, if we get divorced or something, she <laughs> dies or whatever. I Right now, I have no plans to ever get married again. So I'm not worried about this at all. I was say, what is the or something <laughs> part of this? Uh, if we get divorced or something. Uh, or I throw you off a cliff or no. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, and marriage is tough. Yeah, yeah, you're putting this out there to live on the internet. Um, I will say that for a lot of us, it's probably a built-in advantage of always remembering your anniversary when it True. has a date like this you're never going to go now when was that again was it was it the 27th or was it the 25th i can't remember nope one two three one two three perfect I, that's easy I, I don't want that kind of pressure because then if you don't remember you're going to be criticized for forgetting an easy date <laughs> that's that's fair enough too <laughs> it could just get you in the doghouse even further if you can't recall that how one. could you forget seven 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 it was 07, honey. <laughs> the math is tough. <laughs> How old are we? Taking a look back at this year of cool stuff, we look at the micronaps of penguins. Sounds a lot like you on holiday break, Reg. Micronaps of penguins? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> those aren't micronaps. Those are deep naps. Citing a report in the journal Science, the AP profiles a new discovery that chinstrap penguins of Antarctica actually take thousands of short naps each day in order to stay alert and protect their young. Each quote-unquote nap lasts approximately four seconds. That's it, four seconds. These micro-sleeps, as they've been dubbed, actually total around 11 hours of sleep per day and are apparently enough to keep the parents going for weeks. I don't know how when you break it up in that manner. Per Niels Rattenborg, a sleep researcher and co-author of the new study, quote, these penguins look like drowsy drivers blinking their eyes open and shut, and they do it 24-7 for several weeks at a time. What's surprising is that they're able to function okay and successfully raise their young, end quote. Per Christina Larson of the Associated Press, the idea for this particular study came from Won Young Lee, a biologist at the Korean Polar Research Institute. He was conducting field observations and noticed the chinstrap penguins blinking their eyes and seemingly dozing off every few seconds. Says Lee, quote, for these penguins, microsleeps have some restorative functions. If not, they could not endure, end quote. So how do they do it? Well, scientists attached sensors that measure brain waves to some of the penguins in a breeding colony. In total, they collected data on 14 adults over 11 days on King George Island, which is off the coast of Antarctica. No sleep data was collected outside the breeding season, but scientists do believe there's a good chance anyway that the penguins sleep in longer intervals at other times of the year. TBD on that, I suppose. Chinstrap penguins are named for the thin line of black facial feathers resembling a chinstrap and usually lay their eggs in pebble nests in November. Mated pairs share parenting duties, as is the case for numerous types of penguins. One parent tends to the eggs and chicks alone, while the other goes off fishing for family meals. Per the AP, adults don't face many natural predators in the breed season, but large birds called brown skuas prey on eggs and small chicks. Other adults may also try to steal pebbles from nests, and thus the parents must stay vigilant. 
The study's co-author, Paul Antoine Liberel, says, quote, We don't know yet if the benefits of microsleep are the same as for long consolidated sleep, end quote. They also don't know if other penguin species sleep in a similar fragmented fashion. While this new discovery has fascinated scientists, it's not the first time they've documented some unusual sleep adaptations. A 2016 study found that while flying, frigid birds, I hope I'm saying that correctly, can turn off or sleep in half of their brain. These guys actually spend as many as 10 days flying over the ocean, which of course prompted researchers to ask, how do they do it? It still should be noted that the frigid birds sleep just 7.4% of the time they spend sleeping on land. So sleep is taking a hit there. In another example, a study published earlier this year found that wild northern elephant seals can sleep while diving to depths of nearly 1,000 feet. Unlike other marine mammals, they enter full REM sleep as well, with accompanying paralysis, but they do so at depths below those occupied by their predators. So I suppose the threat is not there. You can let loose and take a quick cat nap, but still pretty wild that they're able to do it while diving to those depths. Reggie, going back to the penguins, four second intervals of sleep, I will tell you this, I would be looking like one of those cartoon characters that has red jagged lines throughout their eyes. I, I don't think I would be human anymore. I would be a monster at that point. No. And when you first started the story, you said it's something that I could relate to. I was worried you were talking about the thousands of short naps per day, not the four second. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I mean, the fact that these four second interval naps, though, actually add up to 11 hours is pretty wild. But even so, when you're not doing it all at once, it just has a totally different vibe to it. I could see these penguins sounding like my dad. Every time he would lay down to take a nap when we were younger, he'd say, I'm just checking my eyes for light leaks. And that sounds like <laughs> what these guys are doing is just closing their eyes for a few minutes, making sure no light comes in. And then they're fine. You're fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I go home. I still get that from my dad. Oh, just <laughs> resting my eyes. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure. For a few hours. <laughs> Taking a look at this date in history on December 29th of 1862, that is the date listed of when the modern bowling ball was invented. You know, the circular ball, the three holes. Although I guess, you know, that can be argued. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the description, Reggie. The circular well, ball with three holes. <laughs> well, not all bowling balls have holes. Are they all circular? <laughs> Are all balls circular? <laughs> Technically, if I get into the story more, maybe not. Oh, let's see what you have in store for us. <laughs> I I'm stretching here a little bit, but yeah, maybe not. So, I mean, you could argue that the modern bowling ball isn't the same as the ball made in 1862 was made of wood, while most balls nowadays are a plastic and polyester compound. And as I had mentioned, the modern bowling ball being invented on this day in 1862, the game actually goes back way further. It can be traced back to nearly 5,000 years ago. Back then, Egyptians made balls mostly out of stone. So that's where I may argue that they may not be perfectly circular. Maybe harder to get a you know good circular ball out of stone. I don't know, but then again, they made the pyramid, so who yeah, knows? I think they figured. I think they figured a lot of things out. Those Egyptian civilizations seemed quite impressive. I think it'd be difficult to have a wood bowling ball, especially at a time where I, I, did they have sandpaper? How did you? I I'm assuming they did. I mean, they had wagons and stuff in 1862. They had to sand that down. We're they good. Had wagons, so they must have had sandpaper. I follow your logic. Did you do you hear a lot of people getting slivers from wagons? <laughs> I haven't read about the history of slivers yet. 
My apologies. <laughs> so not only did the Egyptians have stone balls, they also made a few out of a husk of grains covered in leather and then bound them by string. There are wall drawings depicting the game, and there's also a child's grave from Egypt that they found miniature pins and balls. Historians believe the game that Egyptians played resembled Skittles, which nine-pin bowling has descended from. Also, 2,000 years ago, Romans had a game similar to bowling that they also used stones as a ball. That game has evolved into bocce. 1,600 years ago, German tribes used bowling as a religious ritual to cleanse themselves of sin. The idea being the ball is your sin. You're throwing it as a pin. That is, you know, cleansing yourself of your sin. A few bowling facts that you may not have known of. This one I find probably the most interesting. King Henry VIII. He loved bowling, but banned it for the lower classes in 1511 to make it so only the wealthy could bowl. In 1541, uh, they prohibited workers from bowling, except on Christmas, and then only at their master's home and in his presence. That law held until 1845. Wow. I, I, I want to use some choice words here, but I'll refrain. Yeah, I, that's a long lesson. I feel like that's a law that was probably just forgotten over time and somebody uncovered it and be like, yeah, we should probably repeal this. Well, what a silly egotistical law. Hey, Correct. only we should have the ability to go bowling. We're the important people. Yes. And if you peasants are going to bowl, do it in our presence so we can watch. <laughs> <laughs> we at least want to be entertained. Yes. Protestant Reformation founder Martin Luther gave the game some structure. Pins varied at that time from 3 to 17. He set the number at 9, and then he later also built a bowling lane next to his house. Well, those two uh, things go together. <laughs> well, he loved bowling. What Set you the say? number at nine and then later built a bowling lane next to his house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to add to that, but yeah, he loved bowling and he wanted to set rules. <laughs> oh, man. Like, did, did he have to get out there and oil the lane? What did the lane look like? I wonder at that time. <laughs> well, some of them actually were grass at the time. So you'd bowl mm. on the on your lawn. Okay. So you'd roll the ball over grass. In fact, another interesting one in 1588, the English Vice Admiral Sir Francis Drake. Now, this is allegedly was bowling when the Spanish Armada arrived and he announced, we have time enough to finish the game and beat the Spaniards, too. <laughs> <laughs> that is a dedicated, dedicated bowler. <laughs> he had to have been winning. If he was losing, you know he would have stopped. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What frame were they on at the time? <laughs> yeah. In 1846, the oldest surviving bowling lanes in the United States were built as part of the Roslyn Cottage. These were nine-pin lanes, though. Uh, the oldest 10-pin lane is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That one was built in 1908. It's the now oldest surviving bowling alley for the 10-pin sport. It was in the basement of the Holler House Tavern, containing the oldest sanctioned lanes in the United States. Interesting. Okay. Uh, one question that I have tying back to the 9-pin lanes. What formation were the pins in if there were only 9 of them? Uh, for 9-pin lane, it uses a small ball without finger holes. I have to rule. So the five most common games in the U.S., the 10-pin bowling, the largest and heaviest pins, and bowled with a large ball with two or three finger holes. 9-pin uses a small ball without finger holes. I can't remember the formation, uh, but I've seen it before. Uh, there's candle pin bowling. That has the tallest pins, thin with matching ends, bowled with the smallest and lightest handheld ball 
of any bowling sport. Duck pin bowling, short squat, and bowled with a handheld ball. And then there's five pin bowling, tall between duck pins and candle pins in diameter. They use a rubber girdle bowled with a handheld ball. That's mostly found in Canada, though. Okay, so while you were talking, I did some research, some some deep dive research here to find out what a nine pin formation looks like. And I see a couple of options and maybe someone can write to us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com and tell us which of these is more prominent. But I see a diamond formation where it's one, two, three, yeah. two, one. I also see what looks like a traditional pin setup without the head pin in front. So you start with two pins, then three, then four to get to nine. The diamond is the one I think I'm most familiar with, but maybe I'm also thinking of billiards. I, I don't know. I've never played nine pin bowling. I'd like to get out there and, and give that a shot and see how different it really feels. Looking back at some of the history of bowling in 1848, the revolutions of 1848 resulted in accelerated German immigration to the U.S. Five million Germans came around 1900. They, uh, according to what I've read, they brought their love of beer and bowling with them. By the late 19th century, that made New York City the center of bowling. But obviously, you know, there's a big German community in the Milwaukee area. And I feel like the fact that they love bowling, that must have held on to their, their religious beliefs. You know, honey, I'm going to uh, purge myself of my sins and go bowling. <laughs> That's my thoughts, at least. Being bowling. half German. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, as am I, always a religious experience when you attend the lanes. One more little tidbit of history. In 1948, two bowling lanes were installed on the ground floor of the West Wing in the White House. It was a birthday gift for President Truman at the time. I think that's where I do my best thinking as president. If I were ever stressed out, which would be all the time, if you're occupying that job with those responsibilities, I'd probably just go down and bowl and talk out loud to my advisors while I was rolling. So, I think that might help soothe things a little bit. It'd be president path. Do we do a nuclear strike or not? Uh, let me go roll 10 frames and I'll let you know in a minute. <laughs> Boy, I hope that's not the decision <laughs> I'm faced with. But regardless, yeah, I think, you know, some people think well in the shower and, and it just sort of unencumbers them, frees them up to think. And I, I think like an activity like bowling would do that for me. Either that or lawn darts in the South Lawn. That that might be the other option. <laughs> a little lawn darts in the South Lawn, please, before I make this nuclear destruction decision. <laughs> Again, that should not be the scenario we're faced with. I'm thinking worst case scenario here. <laughs> oh, you're really thinking catastrophic. It could be like Sir Francis Drake and all of this. We still have time to finish the game and beat the Spaniards. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I hope you have a wonderful new year. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. Again, if you have any thoughts or want to fix any of our mistakes, feel free to email us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. We'll see you in 2024.